We read in, in verse 13 of that 52nd chapter, which in some ways is a summary of where the chapter is going, the section, the exaltation of the Lord. Verse 13, Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The beginning of that section, it seems to be so, um, well, it seems, as we think of the account, to be somewhat back to front. In the introduction, what we find Isaiah doing is speaking about and stating and emphasizing the exaltation of our Lord. But that, of course, is going to be preceded by his humiliation. It's like what he said to the two in the road to Emmaus. You remember in Luke 24 how, how despondent and how distressed and almost despairing they were, saying we'd hoped that he's the one who would have redeemed Israel. And just beside all that's happened, today is the third day. They were really saying things that were self-condemning. They should have thought about it. This is the third day. He said he'd rise in three days. He has died, and we thought that he was the one who would have redeemed Israel. And the Lord says to them, you remember, fools, slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So the cross must precede the crown. The humiliation must precede the exaltation. But I'm sure you know already that the Jews, the Jewish people, generally speaking, they don't think of this section as dealing with the Messiah at all. They think of it as dealing with themselves as the Jewish people and all the sufferings they've had to go through, as though the description here was of them, which is it's quite a thought. Because they've got a view of the Messiah that is completely different. Their Messiah is one who would be exalted from the very outset. And uh, you can remember maybe the section in the Gospels where they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him a king. They thought the kingdom was coming then. And Pilate had it explained very clearly to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, then my servants would fight. The judgment, the conquest, and the universal dominion of the Messiah is yet to come. But that isn't to happen yet. And the, the section before us is bringing, in a very clear view, the sufferings of Christ, like the, maybe the peak of Old Testament prophecy, like Isaiah was present. We'd almost see that he was present at the cross, observing what was taking place. But not only that, there's something very much, even like the Apostle Paul and what Isaiah is saying, the way he says it. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it can be hard, it can be difficult to really understand what's taking place. So the New Testament letters, their explanations, their teachings make it very clear, and they explain particularly the writings of Paul. But here in Isaiah, we have Isaiah looking into and giving definition, making statements about this amazing reality, the sufferings of Christ, that the humiliation he endured and the exaltation that he received is something that was on, the, on account of our sins being laid to his account, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we through his, that, 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 that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The New Testament makes it very clear 
this transaction is taking place. And very briefly, we want to look at something of this humiliation that precedes our Lord's exaltation. You see in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 53, begins with this question, who has believed our report? Who has believed what they've heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yeah, that is brought before us as an explanation, I think, of verses um, 2, part of 2, and part of 3. We're looking at the Lord and seeing nothing in him. The reason for that is because the hand of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, verse 1, hasn't been revealed to us, and we haven't believed what the Lord, uh, what, what has been told us about what the Lord has done. You might remember that. I'm sure if, if you aren't a Christian tonight, this might make, 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 well, hopefully it'll make sense. Looking at your life, making an assessment and having something of an understanding of where you're at. The question comes down to what do we think of Jesus? What do we think of him? What does he mean to us? People who have never experienced the power of the Lord in their hearts and lives, those to whom uh, the arm of the Lord has not been revealed, the arm meaning, I think, his power, his blessing, coming with and accompanying his word, the report that Isaiah says has been revealed and shared. It's when the power of God hasn't come with the word of God that it means and he means nothing to us. He is like a root out of dry ground, but especially this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No one's going to turn their heads at him. No one's going to look at him like they'd have looked at Absalom, David's son, remember, with the flowing hair and the beauty and the stature, the way he would go around on horseback and steal the hearts of the men of Israel from his father David. Now, the Lord is someone who wouldn't lift up his voice. He wouldn't emphasize his presence, but he would be so humble and he would be so kind and he would be so gentle. And though he was, though he is, the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, with beauty that is indescribable, that angels only really, we see in Scripture, describe and extol and proclaim the beauty of the Lord. It's a wonderful thought, that. But when we aren't Christians, we don't see anything in him. We don't want to know him. He means nothing to us. Part of that is we don't realize our own sin and our own need. The reality of a suffering substitutionary Savior means nothing to us because we haven't experienced the Lord. But if tonight we are Christians and we're coming here, we're coming here when he says, do this in remembrance of me, and we're saying, Lord, I really want to remember you. But why do you want to remember him? You must know him. Peter says we haven't seen him, but we love him. That's staggering, really, to think about that. How can we say we know someone we've never met or, or seen? We can meet someone we've never seen. We can communicate. But to actually love that person, like we love no one else, like it's not possible to love anyone else, isn't that a wonderful thing? Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's a heavenly joy. We haven't seen him, but we love him. And the reason, the seeing, I think Peter explains, is equated with faith. 
Of course, Isaiah didn't see him in the same way. Isaiah, we're told by John, saw his glory in Isaiah 6, the vision that he had at the time of his calling. But it wasn't a face-to-face like Peter, James, and John saw him and knew him in that respect. And it was something for Peter, James, and John to look, and well, all the disciples, and to see one with no form or majesty. Outwardly, humanly, you'd look at him, and in his humiliation, there wasn't anything to say, oh, you know, like Absalom and so on. But for these disciples to have experienced the power of the Lord in their own lives and hearts, to see something behind the human appearance, to see and say with John, we have seen his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter describes that situation that they had in the Mount of Transfiguration. Second Peter 1, you might remember the way he describes that, um, that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. But see, when you read the Transfiguration, Matthew 16, or when you read um, any of what John says about the Lord and his character, you see it, don't you? You never used to. I never used to. It didn't mean anything to us. He's like the person where we read the end of verse 3 as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You know what it's like? You see someone and you think you want to avoid them or cross the road. You don't want anything to do with them. You don't want to be seen talking to them. You know that feeling? We were all like that with him. Even if we had a religious, sympathetic openness to church and to the gospel, we didn't know him. Because knowing him involves an amazing transformation from God himself. Who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? No form, no majesty, no beauty. That is humiliation all in its own way, isn't it? When we think of who he is, Philippians 2, uh, that amazing section, a very practical section, interestingly, where Paul describes to the Christians in Philippi the need that they've got to be humble and looking on others more than on looking on others' concerns more than their own and, and thinking of other people as being better than themselves. And he brings the example of Christ. He call it one of the greatest Christological statements in the whole Bible. Christ centered the teaching about who oh, he was in the form of God. Though he was, meaning his eternal, his pre-existence. Having that equality with Father and Holy Spirit, the form of God, everything that makes God, God, the sheer Godness of God, all divine existence and perfection and the distinct personality, all glorious. And Paul, in saying that, he's saying, though he was in the form of God, he didn't think of or look upon his equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be insisted on. He didn't look at it as something that he would, like we'd say, we wouldn't insist on standing on our own rights, insisting. Now, that's hard to get our head. We can think, see, people who are great and important in this world, they're very often, well, that would be maybe too general to say it, but it can go to their heads, can't it? You sometimes see celebrities, we can treat other people like nobody's. Because they've got all the fame and the prestige and the importance and the money and the influence and and everyone else is just a nobody. For the Lord to come and to come in a form 
and in an appearance, which is a reality. Form isn't meaning likeness, but the reality um, of what is involved. He is in the form of God. Though we didn't think of his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. I don't know with the children, when you read about, when you read or hear about anything in, in the Gospels about the crucifixion, the sufferings of Jesus, can often come across maybe, or we can often think that it's something that happened to him. And I remember someone talking to me about how they used to cry reading about the cross. It's because of how he suffered. And, and yet that suffering is like the Gospels bring before us. It's something that happened to him, the Gospels emphasize, physically. It's not really... Um, this, of course, and other parts of the New Testament does explain that internal, or, or make reference to uh, the, the internal experience that's coming as a result of um, what the Father is doing to him. But it, it isn't, it isn't feel to feel sorry for someone who had all of this done to them. That is part of it. Peter in Acts 2, doesn't he say, you took him to the Jews, you took him. And with wicked hands you crucified and slew him. So they did take him. They did crucify him. But he, Peter says, was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. You took and crucified and slew. What Isaiah is saying in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's not that his ministry or his mission um, as some might think, and not Christians, of course, thinking of it, but it's that, not that his mission failed. It's not that he came short. It's, it's, it's not that he was, well, it says in the middle of verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. It's, it's to remind ourselves, like he said himself, no one takes my life from me. No one does. Pilate threatened him. Do you not know I have power to crucify, authority to crucify or release you? The Lord in his composure, he said, you could have no authority over me unless it's given to you from above. He lays down his life of his own accord. He doesn't come to be in any way admired by the world. He doesn't come to be, but we're saying that cautiously because you think that it, that, that makes people responsible for not appreciating and not realizing him, but it's his coming at the first time was intentionally in humiliation. It was a choice. And when we think of who he is and of what he's done, humbling himself, making himself of no reputation, it's not like us really. And that's why the Philippines are having that addressed to them because they're, they've got problems. They're being... You know, they're pushing themselves and their own ideas and their own desires and wanting what they want to be done. And Paul is saying, no, don't do that, but have the mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was who he was, he became what he became in order to do what he did. He humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, took upon him the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. 
And then this next part is his exaltation. But we try to remember his willingness and his will and his own self-determination in the whole process, in obedience to his Father's will. And to remind ourselves as well that there is no inferiority whatsoever, personally, between Father and Son. There is, in, in the sense of his becoming the mediator, the one who would stand between God and us. In that regard, he became as the Lord is saying, um, verse 13, my servant. Isaiah describes him as being the servant of the Lord. It's not that he was inferior personally, but in his office, in his representative capacity, being mediator, representing us to God and God to us, and in all that he accomplished, he did take upon himself a position of submission and humiliation and dependence. We really can't understand what that means. Even the miracles that he did and uh, the power that was shown in his life wasn't the expression, I don't think, of his own personal power, meaning as the Son of God. Rather, it would, I think, be because of his dependence on the Holy Spirit, even his offering himself. He did so, Hebrews tells us, through the eternal Spirit. Some think it's through his own person, but I think it's with all of his ministry. Like when, when, um, when some of the Jews were accusing him of being in league with Satan because he was able to cast out demons, he said it very clear that he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. I mean, there's other statements, there are many, but you think, just thinking of his, our Lord's humiliation, that the, the equality within the Godhead is something that remained and, re, and remained completely and forever will remain intact. Our Lord's self-humbling is humiliation. He, by taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men. Or as Romans 8 makes it clear that, that uh, he came, what the law couldn't do, in that it was weak th through the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He didn't come in the likeness of flesh, nor did he come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Real humanity, true humanity, perfect humanity, sinless humanity, but real humanity. He could feel. He could feel joy. Some people don't, well, because it's maybe not recorded that our Lord laughed. Some people have believed he never laughed. I don't know what you think about that. But he grew up with brothers. He grew up in a family. And um, if you've got brothers or sisters, I mean, there's, there's something natural, isn't there? There's something natural about being human. Something natural about... We're not arguing from silence. We're just trying to remind ourselves that while he is and was in the form of God, he was also fully and truly man. How can that be? We don't know. Maybe heaven's glories will reveal more of that to us. We may have more of an ability to enter these things and enter these realities. But he, being equal with God, being God himself, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That he, at the same time as the Word, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John says, have seen his glory. 
his humiliation. In how he appeared, no one recognized him for who he was, unless their eyes were opened, unless their hearts were changed. But do you see him tonight? It's amazing, isn't it? Just to think about that. What has happened to you to make you want to be here tonight to remember him and to keep this sacrament? The change has taken place, the humiliation, because in that situation where he became man and where he humbled himself, he did something that we can't understand and that the terminology is very, well, let me be explained by Paul in more legal terms. In, in the idea of the, the transfer or imputation of our sin and its guilt to him. He was sinless. He was personally innocent. As someone has said, he was representatively guilty. Meaning that as our representative, as an Adam all die, Adam represented us and he did what he did in that capacity. We sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. By God's arrangement. So with the second Adam, what he did, he did in our place. And what he did in becoming the sin bearer and becoming the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he did because he had assumed not just that humanity into union with his own person, but also to carry the guilt and the consequent punishment. I think Isaiah makes that, does he not make it very clear? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Like Job's friends looked at Job and were thinking, this is suffering because of your sin and failing and your rebellion even against God. And people would look at him and mock him on the cross and say, if you are the son of God, come down. We were singing that, we were not in Psalm 22. Well, if, if he is the son of God, let God, let God rescue him if he will have him. We were looking at him as a criminal as a blasphemer, as an outcast, as someone who was imposing themselves and showing themselves to be the Son of God when they weren't. But the thing, when they're saying he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, there's, is there no tr truth in that? Not as the truth was said, as though he was suffering for his own sins, but he was suffering for the sins of others. And those sins, we're told, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The word for is telling us everything, isn't it? He has carried our griefs, our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. There's that idea of what belongs to us being transferred to him. There's no human analogy, there's no way of comparing this. I don't think there is at all. Not, not, well, the magnitude, obviously, but for someone to stand as a substitute legally and to, in standing legally for someone who's guilty, you haven't done the crime, you'd stand and take the punishment for someone else. It's not possible to actually go through and experience what's involved with that. In, in, the, in the same sense as this, in, in the sense that the sin that anyone would, 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 would pay the punishment for doesn't actually involve what was involved for our Lord as being our substitute. 
when we're told in the, in, 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 um, when we're told in, in 2 Corinthians that, that he has made him to be sin for us, it's very powerful language. I think, I'm going to venture saying this, I think if I remember right, someone said, um, and, and the Gallic experts will, will know this, that I think in, in the, the Gallic New Testament, well, the Gallic Bible, the reference to, is to sin offering. He has made him to be sin for us. That we, here's the consequent result of that, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Meaning the transference or the imputation is absolutely perfect. Meaning our Lord in, in carrying our sins and, and uh, being wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, he was dealt with as though as far as that, as though is able to go, as though these sins were, and the guilt root because of these sins was actually his. A human, you know, when we would stand for someone and, and, and take the blame, we had, I remember we had it at, at home, one, one of the wee ones came in and they'd, they'd taken the blame for something someone else did in school. I was trying to tell you, you don't do that. But they tried to. They just wanted to look after their friend. But you know how it's impossible to actually stand in someone's place. hope that's making sense. Only our Lord could, in having our sins laid, as it were, to his account, could he actually, fully, and perfectly be identified with our sin and its guilt. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, we're told that God, the Father, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When you think about the imputation of our sin to, to our Lord, sometimes people think about, or have maybe said that there would have been something of a conscience, a guilty conscience involved. We sang that last verse there in Psalm 69, a messianic psalm, and you know, some, you've maybe come across it, the idea that the psalm is talking in our, our Lord's words that are being used in the psalm, and he's speaking out of a sense, the argument would go of awareness of being the sin bearer. But the difficulty, I think, is when if, if we were to take the blame for someone that, and for something they'd done, we couldn't have the guilty conscience because we never did it. You know, the feeling of, like when David was tempted to number the people, King David, and once he realized what he did, he told his heart smote him. His heart, I mean, his, he was crushed. And the realization of what he had done, you know, where things collapse around you, realize I've done wrong, I've sinned. Guilty conscience. That wouldn't be possible for our Lord. It's not possible. But that isn't to say that he wouldn't have had the awareness of carrying that guilt. Consciousness, meaning awareness of who he was. It's an amazing thing to read in the Gospels. The statements is not amazing the Lord makes of, about himself and revealing the, his understanding of his own person. 
and his understanding of his own work. And how the New Testament makes it so clear to us of the, the guilt. And here it is, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the identification that he made with our sin was perfect. So that God the Father dealt with his Son as though he had committed all of these sins himself. And we do and should marvel and think, how is that possible? We're not to understand it. We can't. And it's not that we, like, like, like um, Philip, won't believe it unless we understand, like he wouldn't believe unless he saw. It's by faith we understand things, Hebrews 11. And things that would defy human logic and leave us tied up in many knots make perfect sense to faith, which involves the understanding and which involves that embracing of the teaching of God's word. You know, we thought of that woman earlier on in Luke 7 and coming to Jesus like she did with regrets and no doubt sorrows, but wanting to show him as well how much she loved him. Can we follow that tonight? Because we, we're all broken people, aren't we? We've, we've, we've all made a mess. And you've maybe fallen short of your own expectations of yourself. Never mind anyone else, but your own ideals. And um, that can be difficult at a time of communion. Just stop and take account of yourself and your life and you think, well, you may ask, what do you see? It might all look like a mess and it's all in pieces. And there's someone who will be on your back and on your case telling you, yeah, you've made a mess and there's no way out of this. You're as well to just accept what's going on and make the most of the time you've got left. And so we should live in this life carrying uh, this guilt complex and feeling of having made such a mess. But we have to remember, just like that woman, she came to get reassurance. The Lord gave her that reassurance of forgiveness and said, go in peace. And Peter, you think of Peter, the one who, who, who had, as someone else has said, the food-shaped mouth. He'd put his foot in it with his words every time he got a chance. And when he denied the Lord three times. How would we, how would we feel? I often think about this. And how, how would we feel if Peter was alive today? Well, it wouldn't be Peter, but a Peter, let's say, or something like, something like that. For Peter to have done what he did, would he still have been in ministry? You know what I mean? Would you trust him? Of course, there's some things that, that would exclude someone. We're not saying that at all. And um, the point we're trying to get at is what the Lord thought of Peter. So what Peter thought of himself doesn't matter. You know, we, we see Peter weeping bitterly. Bitterly. He was so upset at what he'd done when he realized, and it seems, I think Luke tells us, the Lord, is it Luke that says it? That the, um, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and his world fell apart. The cock crowed. Peter looked, made eye contact with Jesus, and then he realized what he'd done. The Lord restored him. The Lord blessed him. And the brokenness that Peter went through was necessary. First time, you remember, the Lord met Peter. Well, not the first time he met him. First time John tells us. Matthew tells us a different account, and that's another issue. But in John's account, where, the Lord is in, where Peter's introduced to the Lord, the Lord looks at him. He looks at him and he says, You're Simon, son of John. 
He said, you will be called Peter, which means a rock. It's like the Lord is saying, I'll make a rock out of you yet. Simon, Simon, the old name, Satan has asked for you, all of you, to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. Even the big mess, big mistake, repeated failures. Three times he denied the Lord that night. Despite all the information he'd been given and the assurance of when it would be and what he would do, he still did it. The Lord was going to use that to make him into a strong person. We see him in Acts 2, and the Lord is using him to to be a messenger of the gospel, and thousands are converted through him. It's only the Lord that can do that. We need to remind ourselves, maybe at times of communion, that he has carried our sin, who his own self, Peter says, carried our sin, bore our sin in his own body to the tree. And it's for us to maybe be able to let go of that sense at communion time of feeling unworthy. Not in, this, not in the sense that we shouldn't feel unworthy, but in the sense that it can consume us. And we feel that we don't deserve to be here. But you know, the, the Lord's Supper as the gospel is the revelation to us of what he has done for sinners like us. We're here because we're not good enough. We're here because we have failed. We're here because we've made a mess, but also we're here because he has done everything in his life, in his death. He's our hope from such heights to such a depth and then to such an amazing height in his exaltation again. There's so much in the chapter. This is just, and in, in, in we think of it just in, in general, verse 12, the father saying as a result of all the humiliation and the suffering, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. His exaltation. It's a thought all on its own of the one who is higher than the heavens, the one who is God over all and blessed forever, but in his role and in his capacity as mediator and with his humanity, his true humanity, his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of God. He's been given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's what we're saying, isn't it? We've got nothing to bring. We've got nothing to bring to God and say, I've done this or, or anything. Like that woman in Luke 7, she brought herself and she shared and showed her love to him by giving him the best of what she had. She was her heart, wasn't it? Son, daughter, he says, give me your heart. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. The Father has put the Son to grief. It was the will of the Lord. Let's remember that. It didn't happen to him. It wasn't that he was taken advantage of. But what the Father did to the Son, he did for us. And what a depth he went to. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish, the depths, the darkness, as on the cross where the Lord emerges from the darkness, 
he says these words behind Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not in the darkness. That darkness that was these hours surrounding the cross, the symbolism, the hiddenness, the outer darkness that may be symbolized of the abandonment, the suffering, the guilt-bearing, the punishment of the Son. It's as the light begins to break, he says that. There's silence in these hours, utter silence. He doesn't say a thing. And it's in these moments. We cannot enter, we cannot approach. Maybe the darkness is saying that. Not even people who, what I thought, are in the, the, the lost, the lostness, as the Bible speaks of the blackness of darkness forever. Not even people in that situation could enter into his, his grief in the sense that he wasn't suffering for anything he had done. He was the innocent. He was the sinless. But his sufferings were for us. And the will, you think of what was involved, and, and in case we think of it being somewhat easy, though we don't, but, think, but we do sometimes maybe think that because he was God, things were easier for him. But we have to remember that in his being, his being man, he was also in dependence, total dependence on his father. Hebrews tells us in the days of his flesh, when he was in this world, he, he wrestled and agonized with death. He offered strong cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because he feared, though he was the son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Enduring what he endured, friends, with such a perfect and such a full identification with our sin and with our guilt. Let's remember as we come that he has done this for us. He has done this. We have nothing to bring. He doesn't expect us to do anything. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to, there's none of that. Just remember, let's remember as we conclude this part just now before we, we pray. Remember what he said to Peter after he restored Peter to, um, to, to ministry and committed to him the care of the church, the lambs and the sheep. He asked him three times, well, slightly differently each time, but the, the, the gist of it, he just wanted Peter to testify and confess that he loved him. Will you ever do this again, Peter? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask him, are you sorry enough? He doesn't say, have you repented enough? The Lord, like Peter said, he said, you know all things. You know. He's no longer able to boast about his love for the Lord or his superiority or spiritual strength and that he won't fail like the others might. Though all these people forsake you, he said, I never will. And who does? He's not going to say it after he's restored. He said, Lord, you know. You know. That's maybe all we've got. But you know what? That's all we need. We come to him, we're imperfect, and you might even feel more imperfect than you've ever felt in your life, more inadequate, more of a failure spiritually. doesn't matter. Oh, wretched man that I am. Remember these words. Somebody said it, and really we'll finish this now. He had heard on a recording an old, old minister from years ago, and you've maybe come across this before, and it was, but this is, this is what he said, that cry, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from, from this body of death? Romans 7, 
He said, is that the cry of a holy man or of a sinful man? He said it was a holy man. The person who sees something of God will definitely see themselves. And the nearer we might come to him, the more we'll see that. But it's not to despair in any way. Conviction of our sin and that awareness may be an increasing thing at points in our Christian lives. But is at these times, is it not, the Lord is calling us to trust and rest in him. Let go of all of these things. Let go of even trying to make yourself good enough for him. Not that we don't try to be good or, or, or follow him, but that we would rest in his accomplishment, that he has done it. And he said, did he not? It is finished. It's finished. So we come with nothing and we receive everything. It's like the gospel every time we hear it, isn't it? All over again to remind ourselves he has done this in our place. Well, let's pray just now, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, our God, we do thank you for this opportunity and we pray that as we read your word together, so often we read it and wish to leave it as read, that it would speak to us. We pray that this will happen as we continue before you and as we seek to carry on in life, that your word will live and abide in us and that we would know its power and its effect to change us, to liberate us, to set us free, even in our Christian lives, from the oppression and the bondage and the darkness we can sometimes feel, whether it's sin or temptation and these spiritual assaults where Satan can be, like you said to Peter, he's wanted to sift you as wheat, to shake you to pieces, to turn you upside down and leave you with what seems like you've got nothing left. But you said to him, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Underneath are the everlasting arms. So Lord, continue with us. Lead us and guide us, we pray, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.